And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to the Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and our guest today is Mervyn Tang, Head of Sustainable Strategy and APAC at Schroeder's. Hey, Mervyn, good to talk to you. Glad to be here, Matt. So, Mervyn, before we, you know, before we jump into a deeper discussion about ESG and sustainability at Schroeder's and what's going on in Asia, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got here, and then, you know, what is Schroeder's up to these days? Sure. It's a bit of a long journey. Um, so I've worn many hats in my life. So I actually started out working on sustain- in the sustainability space with Citigroup. So I was doing equity sales for clients with global mandates. And one mm-hmm. of the set of mandates that I covered was clients with SRI funds or thematic funds. And so that mm-hmm. was my first taste of sustainability. That is very different to the ESG world that we have now. I actually took probably right. about a 10-year detour. So I was an economist at the Bank of England. I was a diplomat with the FCO. And I was a sovereign credit analyst at Fitch. Mm-hmm. And then while I was a sovereign credit analyst at Fitch, and that was based in Hong Kong, uh, I got a call from MSCI and they were saying, oh, can you come and become the head of uh, ESG research in APAC? And then I think ultimately became the uh, head of fixed income there globally. And effectively, mm-hmm. one of the reasons why they asked for me to join was they wanted to make sustainability more and more applicable to financial and uh, modeling and investment, because it was very much like, a lot of people were talking about climate change, about sustainability issues, but I think really ingraining that to the investment process was becoming more and more important as ESG and sustainable investing became a, a bigger theme. And then, so I did spend about a couple of years with MSCI in Hong Kong, and then I joined Fitch, a return to my old company, Fitch, the credit rating agency, to become the global head of ESG research. So working mm-hmm. on cross-border thematic issues, uh, such as like the how will carbon pricing evolve in the future, or what will water scarcity do to the corporates across the world. I got the opportunity to move to Singapore, actually. So I moved to Singapore about two months ago uh, and joined Schroeder's as the head of sustainability strategy. And I think the one of the key parts of my role is to understand what sustainability means for Asian investors. Could be pension funds, it could be sovereign wealth funds, it could be your intermediary for retail investors. I think what's really exciting about the role is I think maybe four years, five years ago, a lot of these Asian investors took what was prepackaged out of Europe where things where sustainability was being driven and yeah. thought that was the way to go. But now I think increasingly in APAC, there's just more and more realization that there's specific APAC needs. Like we've got oh, more yeah. carbon intensive economies. We've got more considerations of how to go through a transition because a lot of the economies in the region are start with a lower, uh, lower income compared to the US and Europe. And so we have these really important questions to tackle, yet really important because a big part of decarbonization is going to happen in Asia. Yeah, that's a great point. And we'll get into that in more detail later. But uh, I've been lucky enough to work a little bit in, in Hong Kong and travel through through Asia. And someone coming from North America and Europe, 
it's not, you can't just plug and play what you've had in Europe or North America. You know, Asia is so huge and so many different markets, you know, China and Singapore and India and Japan down to Australia and Indonesia and the Philippines and, and on and on and on. You know, each market is coming to any issue, but, you know, we're talking about ESG sustainability from a different perspective. You know, the cultures are different. Regulation is different. Law is different. Invest, investment culture is different. So you've, you've, got a, you've got a big job ahead of you. Tell us a little bit of, you know, anybody who's listened to the podcast knows we kind of, we kind of try to frame things up front with, is there kind of one factor, one number that helps kind of frame the discussion we're going to have? I'll ask the same of you if, if you've thought of that. Yeah. So I have to say the job and being in the ESG industry has been absolutely hectic. Like things feel like it's moving at a million miles per hour. And I think the thing that really sums that up is like, but look at the PRI regulation tracker. I think we're now at almost 800 uh, in terms of cumulative policy interventions regarding sustainability and ESG. So doubling since 2014. And in Asia, the pace of that is just really, really clear. And I think what's astounding is I think we're not only tackling with issues like we've seen in Europe already in terms of how do we standardize disclosure? How do we make sure that uh, funds disclose in a way sustainability metrics that avoids greenwashing? But you have all these other things happening at the same time. I think as we will talk about later, companies and asset managers and asset owners making net zero commitments and thinking about what that means for their portfolios. Increasingly new products like SDG alignments and thematics that that we haven't really seen about five or 10 years ago. And so I do feel like Things are moving really, really, really quickly. Well, that gets into my next question. And, and this is a, kind of our last big framing question we have. And then we'll get into some of the details is, you know, especially talking about APAC, where have we been in ESG? Where are we now? And where do you see things going? And that's a broad, open-ended question. So take it anywhere you wish about what you see coming and where we've come from. I think when I, so I've been in Hong Kong since 2015. So I moved from London. And I think if I think about the ESG conversations I first had, it was what is ESG? What is sustainability? What boxes do I need to tick to be ESG compliant? uh, And how much return do I have to sacrifice to deal with all of this? Exactly. And now I think it's very different. Don't get me wrong. There's different levels of um, uh, education and different levels of sophistication when it comes to sustainability. uh, And that varies between individual uh, asset owners and asset managers or particular clients and uh, different parts of the region. But I think what is clear is that there is more and deeper and more sophistication on specific topics now, because I think words like TCFD, climate scenario analysis, transition risk has almost become part of your general lexicon. So instead of talking about this ESG and sustainability ideas in broad scale, I think like when I make the term, uh, when I say the term net zero and what that means for transition risk, people get what I mean already. I mean, that's the exciting bit. We're really digging into the details of now that these commitments are being made, how do we actually achieve it? What ways do we measure progress? Like all these things, I think, to actually realize, I think, many of the, the objectives that many of us move into sustainable finance to achieve. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good point. I think a lot of folks assume that Europe is so far ahead in ESG. And in some respect, respects, they are, especially in policy and regulation, they are. But I was in, you know, back, back when we could travel, starting to open up again. Uh, we're recording this in, in March of 2022. So, you know, hopefully the, the worst of COVID is behind us. But I remember I was in Hong Kong for a conference about two and a half years ago. And 
the sophistication of talking about SASB and TCFD and scenario analysis and materiality was not much different than what it was in London or in New York or in Toronto or in Frankfurt or wherever. You know, it's very interesting to see that the level of sophistication all around the world on the, on these topics is it's it's really people have really gotten up to speed on what they need to know. But of course, you know, we'll talk and we'll talk about a little bit what's what are the differences in some of the some of the markets you, you talk about and you deal with. And we'll start with, you know, the biggest topic probably in the issue world that people are talking about climate. And and what you guys are, are focusing on at Schroeder's around climate. You know, climate strategy needs to go beyond just scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. So let's start off and, and talk about that. Yes. So I guess maybe like to introduce this topic, I think it's worth just talking about why we think about climate risk and kind of really look into these scope one, scope two and scope three indicators, because we have made net zero commitments and I can go into that later. But the real objective is we realize that the world is moving towards a net zero, low carbon transition. And what that means is that economies and companies have to transform, right? Because it's very well saying this number we'll get to by 2050. But to get there, we need introductions of new technology. We need right. a uh, we need a change in the way that our energy fuel mixes work to less carbon intensive sources. We need to change our consumption behavior, the flights we take, um, what uh, yeah, what we effectively do, what we eat potentially. There's a huge amount that uh, when we talk about going to net zero, it implicitly requires a lot of these things to be done. And right. when we understand, I think, like um, the, to what extent many of these actions have to be taken, it will depend on things like technology development. It will depend on um, how quickly climate changes, because I mean, a lot of these are, a lot of these things are forecasted, and so there's a lot of variables at play, right? You talked about how you know for climate, we're going to have to change from investors down to you know what we do as consumers. You know, we're going to have to change the way we look at the world and the way the way we do things. And one of those things that uh, investors and companies are both looking are at our, you know, and this gets to net zero promises as well, is is targets. You know, how do we look at what targets we're, what are our goalposts for targets? Uh, what are our goals for targets? And how, do, how should we frame that? I think as we look at the companies that we invest in, we realize the targets are coming in a lot of different forms, right? So uh, yeah. different sectors have different norms when it comes to target. There's going to be certain sectors which are much harder to abate than others. Um, so it's much easier to reduce emissions in the energy sector than, say, in the airline sector or cement. And if we're looking at different types of targets, we have different years. So some some companies have set interim targets in 2030 and 2040. Some include scope free some are just scope one and scope two and so there's a lot of things we need to understand on terms of what a company has saying what target they've set but i think once we've understood what target they've set we need to know how they're actually meant to achieve it because there's all oh, i mean you can a lot of people can say they set a target in 2050 or 2040 or 2060 depending kind of give or take yeah. but without any concrete actions it's very hard to gauge and maybe when you get to 2049 you realize oh we'll never we'll never hit this and that's not where the place we want to be and so we're really kind of implementing uh, implementing a process of understanding 
well, first getting companies to set targets, but also getting them to provide a detailed plan. So that includes what kind of operational expenditure or capital expenditure are they going to make to invest in the technology or business shift to achieve those targets? What are the biggest challenges they face? What is potential risks and developments that could affect that target from being hit? And I think once you understand the details of a, a company's target, then you can have a better evaluation of where it sits and should it be moving faster or is it moving at the right pace? Yeah, that's a great point. I think, you know, the first, kind of the first step in this whole process is, you know, okay, companies understand, okay, we need to make a promise for net zero by 2050. And then it's, it's up to investors like yourself to say, okay, that's nice, but what's the plan behind that? You know, there has to be a plan because if, if everyone can get away with just, with just making a promise and then, you know, forgetting about it, we, w- we would do that as people. And it's important to understand that the, the people making these promises, 2050 is a long way away. So that CEO or that policymaker isn't going to be around, you know, most likely in 2050. And so we have to kind of hold their feet to the fire to make sure that there's a plan behind there. I th- and I think that's where we're moving. I think there, there was a lot of 2050 promises made before COP26 back in November. But when you did the research, I think I think it was Carbon Tracker or someone like that looked at this and saw that of the COP26 net zero 2050 plans that were out there, only about 18% of them had a detailed plan behind them. So, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding or you, they have to walk the walk as, as well as talk the talk. Right, let's get let's move on to the next thing we're going to talk about is climate solutions. You know, what are you seeing from the companies you talk to about you know innovative solutions and, and what are some markets that are, are ahead of others as far as looking at climate solutions? Yeah. We've given this actually a lot of thought in the context of kind of our own targets, because like you said, I've talked about the uh, the targets that companies have set, but as an asset manager and asset owner, uh, and like many of our asset manager and asset owner peers, we have also set net zero targets. And so the way that we've set it was we are committed to being one and a half degrees aligned by 2040 and then net zero by 2050. And the reason for that is we realized that for our portfolio companies, it will take time between setting a target and actually achieving the decarbonization to net zero. And so mm-hmm. the one and a half degrees alignment is based off the targets that the companies that we invest in themselves set. And we know that we have to get there by 2040 if they have any chance to get to net zero actual emissions, finance emissions by 2050. And right. as we looked at that and we thought about the process of what it means for our portfolio, what does it mean for our business to meet those targets, we realize it becomes really important to understand what some kind of the scope one, scope two, and scope three and decarbonizing actually means. Because let's take Asia, for example, we've got a lot of companies in the manufacturing, in the materials, in the industrial sector. And these companies tend to be quite high emissions relative to the broader index. It's It's a more carbon intensive set of industries. Now, when we start looking at then what are some of the products and services of these companies, like some of them are wind turbine producers, some of them provide building insulation, some of them maybe even like alternative meats producers. And so when we thought, okay, if we were just to try and decarbonize our portfolio in a way which is just trying to hit this scope one, scope two or scope three target, then 
we may actually lose out on investing these climate solutions because yeah, right. like we're like, oh, with these wind turbines. But actually, when we think about it, these solutions are absolutely essential for system-wide decarbonization. Like you can't, you, the world can't decarbonize <laughs> if you stop investing in wind turbines because there will be no, an inability to switch to renewable power. And so- You're going to avoid those emissions down the road because of the investment you're making today. Exactly. And then if you do avoid those emissions, how do we measure those avoided emissions? Because it's like, oh, there's going to be a difference in terms of uh, how much wind turbines might contribute to wind energy and how much that substitutes for something like coal or gas. There'll be a difference between, let's say, an alternative meat producers reducing the amount of emissions that we get from uh, livestock farming. And so... What, what one of the pieces of work we did was around avoided emissions, which is putting a framework together to understand what the products and service that companies produce do when it comes to substituting for more higher carbon alternatives, and how does mm-hmm. that compare to the rest of their emissions profile? And so it means that we can identify, okay, like there'll be certain uh, there'll be certain companies where they are quite high carbon in- highly carbon intensive, and they will need to improve their process and find detailed transition plans to reduce their emissions. But at the same time, they are absolutely key in contributing to the broader global decarbonization. One of the things we talked about when we're deciding whether or not you were going to subject subject yourself to to the pain of doing a podcast with us was the the idea of how we need to look at systems as investors. Uh, We talked to the folks from the Investment Integration Project last year on the podcast, and that's what they focus on is looking at the whole system, you know, stepping back and and how does my investment or or how does this company fit into the system? And when we're talking about climate, looking at whether it's sector by sector, whether it's, you know, EVs replacing internal combustion engines, the system of manufacturing, and, and it can go on. But it was interesting that you guys are, are starting to look at and trying to look at that holistically, the system level investing. Uh, talk a little bit about that because that's something new to a, a lot of folks. Yeah, I, I think in in many ways, I think one of the things that kind of coming from the Bank of England, having worked on financial stability at the height of the crisis, it was really one of those things where it makes you realize how important system-wide thinking is, right? Because right. there may be an individual bank failing may not necessarily be a big issue. But if you have hundreds of banks failing, suddenly it you have this correlated risk and everything starts tumbling down. And right. it's some many ways, that's kind of how I feel about climate change and how to think about it, because we're talking about a change in the risks that companies, governments, and like um, many types of investments face that they all face, right? Like it's, uh, we're all face dealing with the physical risks of climate change, maybe in varying levels. And we're all going to be dealing with a world where carbon prices are higher. And that's going to mean uh, shifts in these business models. And so it becomes important when we're starting, okay, let's say we're thinking about setting and meeting a net zero target. What are we actually trying to achieve when we set that target? Because right. like, maybe maybe kind of talk about one piece of analysis we did and we kind of looked across our portfolios. And what you realize is 80% of emissions comes from about 20% of the companies we hold. And so it's it's really yeah. situated in five key sectors, like the energies, the utilities of the world, the transportations, the kind of the most obvious ones. And so if you just wanted to shift that whole portfolio towards uh, tech or retail or insurance, suddenly the emissions profile of your portfolio is much lower. And you're like, okay. That's great. But what have I achieved 
with that move? Am I helping, like, will the companies that I have divested in or um, stopped, uh, re uh, removed from my portfolio, would they actually yeah. be reducing emissions any faster? Will we have a hand, like, hand in engaging them and kind of really pushing them to do more? Will we really have diversified portfolios that our clients want when they're thinking about their overall investment objectives? Because it's not just low carbon for many of our clients, right? It's also thinking about a diversified risk as well as earning a return. And so as we start thinking about this, we realize that we really need to understand what we're trying to achieve, which is making sure that our portfolios are resilient to a low carbon transition and the way that the world is moving and taking uh, the companies that we invest in along that net zero journey. That's a great point. You know, I, and this is a discussion that's uh, a hot one in the ESG world right now, but it, it's one that's been building for a while is, you know, you mentioned the, up, up top kind of the, the momentum behind PRI. And we talked about, you know, we were both around when PRI first started and we've seen that grow and we've seen the ESG acronym become, you know, kind of dominant in the, in the investing world. But people need to stop and think, okay, what does that mean when there's an ESG label or sustainability label on a fund? You know, in many cases, it's a closet tech fund because you can have lower, you're going to have lower emissions and, and that's going to make someone happy. It's like, hey, I'm saving the world with my green fund, but that doesn't address the problem. That issue of climate change doesn't go away because you're just not investing in it. And, I, and it's very important what you said about engagement. You know, you sell off of those. I was talking to someone from an endowment last week that they're getting pressure from students where they are to divest of oil and gas companies. And that's an option you have, but then you, you're not able to engage with those companies and you're not able to try to push that uh, solution in, in the right direction. You know, and it's the same kind of thing. You divest in, in that case, but the problem hasn't gone away. And so I think you know investors need to understand that for climate, and we'll get to natural capital as well a little bit later, same kind of issues. Those issues don't change if you, if you as a person or an institution hap, just happen not to be investing in them. You know, those solutions are going to need to, to come from somewhere as an, as an investor, you can participate. If you're not participating, it's still, it's still, you know, something that we need to need to address. Yeah, I think one of the things that we, we try to think about that as an investor, we need to use everything in our toolkit, right? And that includes engagement, that includes our kind of reallocating our portfolio, and that might ultimately in, uh, also include divestment. But you need to think about a different like, kind of ways to employ that toolkit in the most effective way possible, right? Which is, okay, start with the engagement process, think about how to escalate that engagement if the change that you want to see and achieve is not being seen from your portfolio companies. And then at some point, maybe divestment is a lever, but really thinking about kind of this a coherent framework and understanding the regional nuances as well as sector nuances and applying that kind of escalation framework uh, that links that both engagement and divestment considerations. I mean, that's a really key part of kind of, I think, affecting change. Well, I, I, I teased it just a second ago, but uh, the next thing we wanted to talk talk about and jump into is the, the issue of natural capital and biodiversity. You know, the TNFD, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, has started up. We're likely to see, you know, the first round of suggestions from them built on, you know, the similar to the TCFD model that we've, we've had for climate. And biodiversity is actually a bigger issue than climate because climate is kind of a subset of biodiversity and natural capital. And from what I've seen, we've talked about this a little on the podcast before with other guests, is that you know, biodiversity, natural capital is kind of where climate was in people's consciousness a couple of years ago. It's like kind of a two or three year lag 
but I see it coming up and a lot more people talking about it. So just to start off, you know, where do you see those discussions as, a, as a, an investor, uh, you know, with the companies you talk to in, in Asia in particular, where's the conversation around natural capital? Where do you see that going? I think maybe I'll separate this into two aspects. I think uh, when it comes to biodiversity, I think there is the risk aspect uh, or and the impact uh, and the portfolio company uh, aspect where there's increasing demand to understand what is the biodiversity implications of my investments that I make. And that could be the impact on marine life. It could be uh, palm oil. And what does that mean for deforestation? It could mean uh, it could be the way that waste is uh, uh, corrupting the environment. There's a kind of a whole load of different factors there. And I think like as we talk about kind of the um, objectives of ESG investing, which can vary by investor, there's a lot of consideration. Okay, what happens when there's a single use plastic ban and there's uh, and waste is uh, kind of uh, yeah, the the process of uh, waste becomes much more costly. Right. What happens if the world wants to tackle deforestation a lot more? What does what what does that mean for palm oil companies who don't have a good enough process for uh, managing deforestation? And so, I think yeah, like you said, it's for biodiversity because it's such a wide range of topics and ideas. It's still at a nascent stage, and I think we're yeah. still looking at the what the right data is and what's the right framework of really putting this together. And that's where stuff like the TNFD becomes really important. In Asia, I would just add maybe one more thing, which is a slightly different idea, is how do we invest in natural capital in a way that would, I think, preserve biodiversity as well as make a financial return from uh, these natural capital assets? I think that's a lot of the conversation we're having in Asia. Uh, And I think it's one of the reasons why it's, I think Asia is like, it's a real, like makes up for a very large percentage of uh, forests in the world, particularly tropical forests. And tropical forests play a really important role in sequestering carbon as well as uh, preserving biodiversity in the sense that there's a lot of habitats that live there and they also play a role in climate adaption in terms of uh, their role as floodplains and Mm. i think one of the interesting things that's driving interest in natural capital aside from uh, uh, increasing kind of value that people are placing on biodiversity is the development of the carbon markets uh, particularly the voluntary carbon offset market and i think one of the kind of key aspects of a forest in terms of sequestering carbon is they can potentially generate offsets. Yeah. And I think because of that generating offsets capability, I think people increasingly see that as a potential cash flow for preserving those forests. Now, carbon markets are still at a nascent stage. We're seeing developments in Singapore and Asia like um, the Climate Impact X, or in China, we've seen the um, CCER in terms of offsets for the compliance markets uh, in carbon. Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of things happening, which is putting a value to carbon and hence carbon sequestration. And I think that's leading to a lot of interest in natural capital like forestry. Yeah, this is such an interesting space to watch. I remember, you know, let's take you know palm oil for for example. You know, I remember years ago learning about you know what palm oil was, how it's in everything, and and you know the the history of deforestation, and, and you know my my son loves Nutella on his toast, right? And so, you know, th- they're a huge there's a they're a huge user of palm oil, and then somewhere down the road they joined the i forget what the name of the organization is but the for sustainable use of palm oil and then i saw a story just last week about how so so the issue of palm oil has been been one been one that's been going on a while and if you're looking at it 10 years ago there was more despair 
around it. And then standards started coming, best practices started coming. This organization about sustainable palm oil, you know, came up and larger corporations who were getting heat on this, you know, joined and, and had better sustainable practices. And I saw a, an article last week about how deforestation due to palm oil is still is still growing, but it grew at the slowest pace, you know, in 20 years. A lot of because of the, the efforts to, you know, to have more sustainable palm oil. So I say this is so interesting. There's and there's going to be so much in this area because think of that one issue of palm oil, sustainable palm oil. And then that's just one small issue in the whole broader scope of natural capital biodiversity. And you, you have similar issues for water, similar issues for fisheries, similar issues for you know, bee pollination of our crops and bee die-offs and, and what are we doing about that and and clean air and timber. And so it's the next decade is going to be full employment for people discussing natural capital, uh, but we're just at the nascent stages. And so it'll be very interesting. And carbon markets, voluntary carbon markets are the same thing. You know, I, I want to have a, a podcast on just that topic, you know, down the road because it's just the wild west around carbon offsets. And carbon offsets are going to be a smaller part of how we get to you know net zero 2050 targets. A lot of it will be what we talked about you know up front is changing the way we travel, the way we eat, the way we do a lot of things. But the carbon offset markets will play a role. But in many places, they're not audited and they're not they're not regulated. And so that's another area where there's going to be a lot to talk about in, in the coming years. But that's that's another podcast. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about that later. I mean, so I am quite optimistic about all this just because um, I'm seeing the advances in data and just the infrastructure being formed. I mentioned Climate Impact X in Singapore and what that means in terms of standardizing and verifying a lot of these projects like Natural Capital. Yeah. But I think also we invested in a company in the UK called Natural Capital Research um, not long ago. And one of the ideas of this company is to understand using geospatial data, AI, machine learning to go, okay, how do I plant trees in the forest in a way that will maximize offset potential while minimizing the damage to biodiversity or even increasing our ability to kind of preserve the biodiversity habitats? How do I consider some of these issues in the context of will I damage a floodplain? uh, Will I damage the function of a forest as a floodplain uh, if I decide to plant different trees and all these are such crucial questions right and we're only really scraping the surface of the potential for what we can do with some of this data yeah yeah we could talk for hours but i know it's it's late in the evening where you are in singapore early here in the states where i am so let's wrap up just more broadly talking about we talked a little about what's going on in, in asia pacific but you know you're well placed to to be our eyes and ears for now about what you see you know coming in in Asia Pacific in the ESG and sustainability landscape, and, and so tell us a little bit you know about the action around sustainability and how you see this developing. I think one thing kind of spending more time with uh, as uh, someone focused on the region is you realize just how different some of the priorities can be across uh, countries within the region. So something like Japan, there's a lot of focus on the stewardship code and corporate governance, because that's been kind of a big topic for a long time uh, in the country. In Australia, because of some of the regulations around uh, modern slavery, there's a lot of focus in terms of what our clients are looking for and the questions that they ask on the topic. 
if we ask if we go to somewhere like Indonesia and Malaysia because of the makeup of the population, there's a lot of discussion about how the Sharia investments fit in with ESG and sustainability. And then China, of course, has a lot of discussion on carbon neutral policies that the government has set, the conversations about common prosperity. There's a, a lot of kind of individual country elements there. I think one of the maybe the kind of the glue kind of what or, or kind of a common uh, element I've seen across the region and at least at least a, a large proportion of the region is this more carbon intensive starting point in terms of yes uh, the fuel mixes tend to involve more coal and uh, fossil fuels uh, and also we're talking about a lot of low income economies like the Lao and Cambodia of the world and so there's a recognition that we need to decarbonize but we need to decarbonize in a way which we make sure that there's no groups that are too severely harmed in that process and we need to find ways of managing that and I think that's why in terms of the policymaking circles, a lot of the private sector here are talking much more about transition. Like So Japan, in the ASEAN taxonomies, there's a lot of conversation about how do we deal with transition fuels or transition technologies and activities. And it's it's one of those things. It's like it's one of those words that are kind of like a bit more difficult to kind of discuss in Europe because I think the the, the views on transitions are more mixed. Whereas I think mm-hmm. in Asia with transition, there is a desire to make sure that something that is transition or whatever label is a framework is made to transition is credible and is not greenwashing. There's a lot at stake for do that in the region, and that means finding defined timelines, finding really kind of really define measures when it comes to what pace do we expect? What kind of energy efficiency you expect? What kind of sector do we um, expect these transitions to be applied to, a transition framework to be applied to, to get to something where we, we make sure that investment continues to flow to some of these sectors. And I'm, I think it's one of those things where I think in terms of how the world and sustainable finance develops, I think Asia is going to have a big voice on how we think about transition in the broader global sustainable world. Yeah, the word I've heard is just transition, and and people can look that up and, and jump into more of that, uh, and maybe that's a future podcast down the road as well. But we've been, we've kept you for quite a while. I know you've got work you've got work too, and it's late in the evening, so I'll let you go. But before I do, you know, we'd like to give our our listeners a little a little homework before we leave you. We just talked for about 30, 40 minutes, and there's you know a lot more to talk about, or a lot more to read or listen to on this topic. So. Can you give, you know, what are you reading or, or what do you suggest our audience read or listen to to learn more? Maybe I'll go for one ESG and one non-ESG one. Uh, so on the sure. ESG front, I really enjoy a book called Grow the Pie from uh, a professor called Alex Edmonds in London. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the concept is very much like in a zero-sum game type capitalism view of the world, it's winners and losers, right? And it's um, when we're thinking about how that world works, it's uh, the profits that one company gains means that it's going to be potentially losses for another. Whereas a key part of thinking about, I think, ESG and sustainable investing is that you can grow the whole pie. The actions that you take in terms of uh, reducing carbon emissions help to the world grow more because you reduce the potential cost of climate change in the future. And I think some of the ideas that the book introduces really helps to frame what we're trying to achieve with sustainable investing. I must admit, with the amount of uh, workload that we have right now with ESG, I try to not read on sustainability for pleasure. But I, I do love podcasts, not just the, the, these wonderful CFA podcasts, but one of my favorites are kind of the NPR ones with uh, Invisibilia or um, Esther Perel, um, because I think actually linking it back to sustainability, I think there is 
a lot we need to understand about society psychology to really be able for change to be enacted because it requires a lot of people to change the practices they are used to and i think yeah like i'm really intrigued in a lot of these psychology based podcasts because it kind of gives me i feel like it gives me a decent insight on how society as a whole is shifting no that's a great point and i think that's a great listen because what we're talking about uh, when we talk about what's going on in sustainability ESG is a monumental change in culture and society. And so it takes more than just saying, you know, oh, I'm investing in this, this green thing. It's, you know, we need to have conversations about how does that change our culture? How does that change our society? And how are we going to get from, from A to B? So I think that that's a, that's a great way to, to, to leave it. Giving people homework that's outside of the strict ESG boundaries, but still, still, uh, still pertinent. Thanks, Mervin, for for talking with us. I'll let you go, and uh, I hope to see you again. Thanks, Matt. All right, take care. Mm-hmm.